as a as a local church, we at Windsor Baptist have spent the the past or the first nine months of this year working our way right, way right through the Bible on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings in a series we have called Essential Word, and uh, it has been a real journey of discovery as we have sort of listened to and engaged with not only God's story but our story as told to us in the Old and New Testaments of the Bible, which we do believe is God's written and essential word. And back in January, we started in Genesis with the creation narrative, that biblical account of how this world and how we were formed. And now, 38 weeks later, we have reached that part of the big story whenever the church is in its early days of formation. And as part, or that part of the story is told for us in the fifth book of the New Testament, uh, the book of Acts of the Apostles. And this morning we come to the 15th chapter of that book. And one of the pressing questions facing the church, or the early church at that time, was this Who is the church for? Who is the church for? Which is a great question to ask on Back to Church Sunday. In fact, it's a great question to ask on any Sunday or any day for that matter. Now, at one level, the answer's easy. Really, really easy to me. Church is for absolutely everyone. And you'd expect me to say that, that no matter where someone is in their thinking about the Christian faith and about God, whether they're seeking, sceptical, or suspicious, and that may describe you, there should always be an open door and a warm welcome. And whenever there isn't, we've got it all wrong. All wrong. And so anybody, anybody should be able to attend a local church and a service like this as often as they want. But there's a deeper issue that I do want to explore just in a few, for a few moments. There's a bigger question I want to ask. And I actually think this was the question that was being asked and wrestled with in Acts chapter 15. And it's this. What does it actually mean to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. To go beyond simply attending services and meetings and events and to become an accepted member, an integral part where you fully belong. That's for me the big question. And for the first century church and the early Christians, this was a vitally important question because it would seem different people had radically different answers, regard, uh, yeah, answers regarding that question. And that led to what has been widely described as the first church conference, where people met to discuss and debate, well, who was really in and who wasn't? And what should be the conditions under which we accept people as being in? And that council meeting took place in Jerusalem. And in Acts 15, it actually provides us with a fascinating insight into their discussion. So if you do have a Bible, if you want to turn to that, it would be great. It's page 1110 in the Bibles that are in the pews. But before we go there, it's really important to know that at this time, in the big story, there were some people who thought, well, to be part of the church, you either had to be Jewish, or if you weren't 
Jewish, then you had to be willing to buy into certain Jewish customs and traditions. In other words, there were additional entry requirements that you needed to meet. So if you look at the first verse, and it's here on the screen, you read and discover that a particular group who came from Judea to Antioch were teaching, and they were teaching quite forcibly, that unless men, Gentile men that is, that unless they were also circumcised, then they weren't genuinely saved. They weren't totally in yet. They didn't really belong. It was a sort of Jesus plus mentality. And it was developing and it was taking shape within certain elements of the church. And although this is 2,000 years ago, there are aspects of this thinking still alive and well today. Where it seems that to be accepted, you have to sign up to a whole bunch of extra terms and conditions that certain churches place upon you. That we place upon you. Additional expectations to fulfill. And 2,000 years ago, this perspective and this mindset really upset some people, and rightly so. And Paul and Barnabas were among those who were annoyed. They were not at all happy or impressed with this emphasis. And therefore, according to verse 2, they came into sharp dispute and debate with those who were peddling this requirement. And so they went, or rather they were sent, along with some other local Christians from Antioch to Jerusalem to sort this out. And en route, it says, they stopped off at a couple of places and they shared stories of how Gentiles, non-Jews, had been converted. It's there in the text. Had been converted, had met God, had had their lives changed by God, which clearly encouraged lots of people. But in Jerusalem, there were some, and get this, Christian believers who were not so impressed, didn't share their enthusiasm. Their understanding of inclusive church came with conditions attached. See, if you were going to become an integral part of this, then you, verse 5, needed to be circumcised, and in addition, you were required to keep the law of Moses. That stimulated lots more discussion. And in the end, Peter, of all people, Peter gets up to his feet, and he speaks into the situation. But before we look at what he said, it's kind of important to know something of Peter's personal journey on this. Because back in Acts chapters 10 and 11, Peter's thinking regarding inclusive church had been profoundly challenged whenever he met with, talked to and shared Jesus with Cornelius the centurion from Caesarea. And if you were here on Sunday evening, the 26th of June, you might remember how I said that everything about those three C's was wrong. His name was wrong, his occupation was wrong, his postcode was wrong. He was a Gentile who worked for the enemy and he lived in an area pretty much hated by all Jews. And to cut a long story short, and it's a story that actually lasts for 66 verses, it's the longest narrative, single narrative in the whole book of Acts of the Apostles, two critical moments occurred. This is really cutting a long story short. Two critical eyes wide open moments happen for Peter. Acts 10, 28 says this, or at least it starts like this. You are well aware, says Peter, 
that it is actually against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or even to visit him. But, and that word suggests that a significant comment is coming next, a mind-altering revelation is now imminent, but God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men and women from every nation who fear him and who do what is right. There's a paradigm shift in thinking if there was ever one. And the other critical moment occurs whenever Peter shares this story with the other believers. Because they conclude, at least they conclude at this stage, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance unto life without any extra conditions. Inclusive church is a reality. It's not just for certain people groups. There's an open invitation to all to join this new dynamic community. And wrapped up in what Peter says here in Acts 15. Because he's come a long way in his thinking. His prejudices have been well and truly dismantled. So he stands up to speak. And look at what he says. Starts in verse 7. If you have a copy of God's word in front of you. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles should hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Now here is sermon in a nutshell. Here were just three things I'm going to look at really quickly. Here's what it means to be part of the church. Hearts purified, grace received, gospel believed. Hearts purified, grace received, gospel believed. I'm going to ask you to just say that with me, because if you hear nothing else I say, I just want you to remember these three phrases. Ready? Hearts purified, grace received, gospel believed. And you see, when those occur, you don't just come back to a church service. You come back to God. And you become part of the church. And you fully belong. And that's our hope and our prayer for each and every person that's here this morning. And I want to start this bit by just looking at the rather interesting phrase at the beginning of verse 9. He, that's God, makes no distinction between us and them. Jews, Gentiles. See, as human beings, there's often a tendency on our part to categorize people. We're good at categorizing people. Based on things like their race and background, their education, their occupation, their gender. But with God, those aren't the defining issues. They're not the things that determine our welcome into his church. The issue for God is quite clearly the condition of your heart. It's the internal us. It's the real person that God is deeply interested in. 
And Peter refers to the heart a couple of times during that speech. In verse 8 he says, God, and I try to put a bit of emphasis on it, God knows the heart. In other words, God knows where each and every person is at sitting here this morning. Very few of the rest of us probably know where you're at, but God does. Because God knows, it says, your heart. He sees what others don't and can't. He sees and knows the real me. The real Robert. And in verse 9, after Peter makes the point that with God, listen, there's no distinction. He then says this, for he purified their hearts. That's the defining issue. That is, if you like, the only distinction that matters in God's terms. That is what determines whether someone's truly part of the church or not. And Jesus explicitly taught that it's out of the heart that all the wrong, all the dehumanizing thoughts and attitudes and actions and behavior, it's out of there that all those things spill out. And therefore, our hearts need to be renewed, cleaned up, purified. And a genuine, authentic Christian is someone who recognizes that the condition of their heart matters and they also recognize that it's only God who can bring about transformation at that level it's only God who can purify your heart and mind to come back to God to become part of the church involves a cleaning up a cleansing of the heart but how does that actually happen well within Peter's mini speech we find the answer Because he speaks about the other two things. Grace received, gospel believed. Words and phrases that I know are loaded with meaning and we should spend ages on. You see, some people in Jerusalem did a very clear external distinctions between the us and the them. So they were happy for them to come to church. But to be truly part of it, they insisted that them sign up to all these extra requirements. The circumcision. To the law. And Peter says, why do you do that? Why do you do that? You know that it's just an unbearable yoke and burden. It's just an unbearable thing around their necks. In other words, what Peter's saying is, listen, you don't have to do this to be genuinely saved. You don't have to do anything extra to prove anything. It's not what you can do for God. It's what God has done for you. And for Peter, and for the rest of the New Testament, it is all about, as Robert has so brilliantly said this morning, it's all about grace. Grace. What does Peter say? No. It's not about what you say we should do. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are saved. Salvation is a gift. It's a free, undeserved gift from God. You don't do anything to get it. You can't add anything to it. And salvation, what salvation does, it rescues you from the fate you would otherwise incur because of your sin. But because of grace, which is an entirely a God thing, you're rescued. 
you're saved from the power of sin and death. And so to become part of the church, to be a Christian, involves a recognition and an acceptance that you can do nothing about the condition of your heart. You can do nothing about the condition of your heart. It's a mess. And all these things keep spewing out of it. The angry words, the gossip, the lust, the lies just keep spewing out and there's nothing you can do about it. But because of God's incredible generosity, his amazing grace, our hearts can be purified. We can be saved. And that's grace. Where did we start this morning? Psalm 103. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's rich in love. What is the other phrase in that psalm that was on the screen? God does not treat you as your sins deserve. And I thank him for that. But there's more to this last point. 10-2. Because although this grace is amazing and salvation is a free undeserved gift, we've got to realize it came at a price. Huge price. But not a cost to us, because that would contradict everything I've just said. But it actually cost God a lot. And to believe that, and to know what was involved in that, you need to hear the gospel and you need to believe it. And look at verse 7, because it's exactly what happened to these Gentiles. They heard the gospel, says Peter, and they believed it. And you see, if people are going to come back to God and become part of his church and discover salvation and rescue, then they need to hear the message. And at its core, and this is, this is condensing it all, this, this, is, this is madness at one level, but anyway. At its core, this gospel message is good news about something that has happened. Has happened. The one true God, the world's creator, loved this place so much, you and me included, that he gave his only son, who entered our world as one of us, who lived an inspiring expression of true humanity. And then he laid down his life on a Roman execution device. Three days later, he came back to life defeating the power of evil and confirming that he actually really did come to launch the long-awaited kingdom of God, creating a new world order in which everything will be put to right and joy will replace sorrow one day. There's the gospel in a nutshell. And that good news, and it's good news about Jesus, invites a response and the most appropriate response to the gospel is to believe it. Well, let's be really honest. This good news is so utterly unlikely and extraordinary that you can't just expect people to believe it in the same way that they might believe you when you said it's raining outside. And yet, as people have heard and still hear the message, the good news about Jesus, some at least find they do believe it. It makes sense to them. In other words, it connects, it resonates, it stirs something within them. Their eyes are opened and they see differently in rather the same way that you sometimes glimpse a whole new world when you stand in front of a great painting or you find yourself swept off your feet by a song or a symphony. It's that type of thing. And so you don't just believe that God exists. You believe and trust in God. 
It's more than a belief that God exists, although that is clearly involved. It involves a loving, grateful trust in a God who exists. And so it's not a matter of figuring this all out in your head. Like, how could anybody ever do that regarding the gospel? (laughs) Instead, it's a matter of realizing that someone is calling you. Someone is offering you forgiveness in Christ from your heart problem. Offering to wipe your slate clean, take your sin as far away from you as the east is from the west. And grant you a brand new start. Inviting you to a restored relationship of mutual love. And calling you to a life of discipleship where you're formed, conformed, transformed into the likeness of Christ. And where Jesus isn't just acknowledged as your saviour but is actually acknowledged as your Lord. And we believe this high. How do we believe this? What do you mean it's not the way you've just described it? Well, Robert said it. We believe it by faith. Blind faith? No, not blind faith. But faith that comes high from hearing the good news of Jesus. So back to our verse 9 as we finish. Makes no distinction between us and them. For he purified their hearts by faith. How does faith come? Through hearing the good news about Jesus. Time and time again, we just need to keep hearing it. That's why we do this every week. We need to keep hearing the good news about Jesus every single week. And say thank you for it. So, hearts purified, grace received, gospel believed. And if you've got an open heart, and if you recognize your need of grace... And if you want to hear more about the good news of Jesus, then just ask any of us afterwards. We're going to close, I'm going to pray, and we're done. Thank you for being patient. And I'm actually going to use the words of the song we're going to sing. God of grace, amazing wonder, irresistible and free. Oh, the miracle of mercy, Jesus reaches down to me. God of grace, We stand in wonder at my God who restores our soul. His own blood has paid our ransom. Awesome cost to make me whole. God of grace who loved and knew me long before the world began. Sent my Savior down from heaven. Perfect God, perfect man. God of grace, I trust in Jesus. Don't just believe in him, I trust in Jesus. I'm accepted as his own and every day new grace sustains me as it continues to sustain Robert, as I lean on him alone. And God of grace, I stand astounded, cleansed, heart purified, because I'm forgiven and I'm secure. I don't need to do anything else. God, you've done it all. And all my fears are now confounded, my hopes forever sure. God of grace, now crowned in glory, where one day I will see you face to face. And it's there that I will forever adore you. And it's there. I'll enjoy your everlasting grace. Amen.